0: Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week we have a very special guest. We have Beth Steiner, an organizational strategist and team and executive coach that has come to join us to talk about the world of work. A couple weeks ago we talked about sort of where are the workers. It seems like America's got a lot of workers on the sidelines not working but there's also another kind of national narrative that seems to be emerging and that is the people who are working and who are in jobs and are in corporate America. There seems to be a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. A lot of people don't necessarily love going back to the office and also what's happening at the office. And Beth here is just going to kind of talk about what she's seeing and kind of where are we going as American workers? What kind of demands can we make? The Wall Street Journal had a big article all about this sort of theme a couple weeks ago. And here's the best paragraph I read. Work isn't just our livelihood. It can be a source of structure, belonging, and meaning to our lives. But that doesn't mean our jobs should dictate how we spend most of our waking hours. For several generations, we've organized our lives around our work. Our jobs have determined where we make our homes, when we see our families, and when we can squeeze in during our downtime. It might be time to start planning our work around our lives. And Don, Beth, what did you guys think about this article? Where do you see American workers? And do you see this angst? Or is maybe this kind of all this blown up by the media in general?
1: Well, I read this article and there's so much here and things that I don't really understand about the workforce is a limitless category, seeing as I've only been in education. And I'm, my parents were in education basically. And I thought of the smartest person I know that understands the workplace and that's Beth. So Beth is the expert here.
2: Well, thanks. I, that's a quite a, a tribute, Don. I don't know. We'll see if we can live up to that here. I appreciate it. I, I think this is a fascinating article as well. Two of the things that struck me is the quote that more than half of American workers want their next job to be self-employed. And like, what is that about? And I, I think it's well supported by the other a statement in the article about net freedom, and it's described as having the liberty to have freedom from obstacles and interference by others. And then positive liberty is the freedom to control your own destiny and shape your own life. I feel like that is a the silver lining to the the migration piece that you're you're talking about. I look at organizations, what I see is the aspiration to have more of this, but even the way it's being achieved feels like through confining and and labeling and putting in categories versus truly freeing. And I wondered if we were to open that paradigm to what freedom looks like, how many organizations would actually be willing to step into that?
0: Do you think part of all of these feelings of wanting their own job is just sort of people kind of daydreaming, right? The day-to-day is kind of a grind and you think, man, I really want to start on my own. But in a lot of ways, people are not thinking this clearly, like you've got to have health care or you've got to have a 401k or, you know, all of these little things on the side that maybe keep a lot of people from leaving their jobs. And do you think some of this is just that maybe for the last year or year or two, people have been allowed to work from home? Maybe they've had kind of a reduced or easier schedule. And all of this is just kind of a bad couple months as people are just getting back to the grind, I guess, of work.
2: Yeah, I think there's truth to that. I think there's that adage when it comes to relationships. If you're, if you're leaving someone, are you going to something or are you running from something? And we probably have a mix of that in both scenarios. I had two conversations in the last week with people at very large employers. Both are looking to leave, but it's not that they don't love their job. They actually do, but they can't do it in the confines in which the organization has set up. To the extreme, one of them needed to buy a trackball off of Amazon so that their mouse constantly moved. So on the screen, they showed up as green and active all the time. So that is like the other extreme of freedom. That's not freedom, that's being the machine again. So to your point, Zach, I think these are talented, smart people who would love to stay, but are suffocating in the current environment and not not thriving. So they're looking for what else is there where I can thrive. And obviously one solution is if I'm my own boss, I know I can set the parameters that would make me effective.
1: Do you think it's that they just realized it due to the tremendous change in the nature of work in the last 18 months that opened people's eyes to additional possibilities? Or is it just that this has always been it and I've I've hit the breaking point that this would have happened regardless?
2: Yeah, I think it's a variety of factors. I think when we have something like a pandemic, it unmoors us to what we thought was true, right? We, We thought that my job was stable, and that the economy was stable, and all of a sudden, this disruption happens, and I don't know about your experiences, but for me, it questioned a lot of perspectives I I held as true, and and made me think that there's a lot more possibilities, And, and so what else is there, and what else do I need to be considering, so I think it's all of those variables. As a country, as a world, we certainly have been going through a huge shift the last 30 years in how we look at gender and sexuality and women in the workplace. And I, I think this is just one more variable that's added to that evolution of how we see common day experience when it comes to work.
0: The article sort of went on to kind of talk about workers and sort of what is it that they want. And there was just sort of like two different sentences in the article, but I kind of put them together and just said, workers want the freedom to choose how much they work, when they work, who they work with, what they work on, and what process they basically follow to get their work done. This almost seems like a revolution in a way, for workers in terms of it, you know, I guess the stereotype was the company is just like, this is what we're doing. This is how you're going to do it. And this is who you're going to work with. Are you finding that companies are really struggling with this many demands? I mean, this seems like it it is a major shakeup.
2: I think that there's a gap in, uh, again, that aspiration of what a company would like to do and where they are from a development stage in their life cycle. And Um, One of the books that's a really great read as it relates to this is is called Reinventing Organizations. It talks about the evolution of organizations over time, but also by choice, and how there's a a level of organization called TEAL, which is highlighted in this article around Morningstar as an example. And it's exactly what you're describing, Zach. It's people, there are no bosses. They are self-organizing teams. But the structure of that group and, and their philosophy and how they're set up. Is to be a teal organization and so therefore you are enabling and empowering all those behaviors that's how the company was generated what i feel like i'm seeing through my coaching and working through teams is that the company says they want something they're not using the language teal i am but they say they want this stuff that's available to them in teal but their organization's actually operating more in a red kind of color which is hierarchical top-down command and control. Those two things, they can't exist together. It's a different view of the world and a different perspective. And I feel like that's the crunch. You have some that are lower down in the evolution that are going to stay there. My my neighbor works for Fox News, and, and I would say that they're there a bit. Everyone's coming back to work, whether they like it or not. And there's no vaccines. That's no freedom. That's no control it is a bit of command of control from my viewpoint. There's others, other organizations who say they want you to be empowered and and to create your own schedule. But then you see, well, you can do it on Fridays from two to five, that that freedom (laughs) evaporates (laughs) a bit. And so to me, that's the gap between what I desire. I would like to be able to offer that, but my organization actually thinks from a different lens and, and those aren't the same kinds of lenses. That's my view of what's happening here and why it feels really highly variable. And and to some degrees, this freedom is still being controlled and confined and prescribed because that's what the organization set up to do.
1: I feel like the organizations want to fill the spots and they're trying to say the words that allow people to show Mm -hmm. up. But at the same time, they have a job that needs done. And we'll give you as much freedom and creativity as you can, (laughs) as long as you're accounting from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on whatever, pet stores, is it possible to really have a defined job and then work in the freedom later on? You know, I think that's kind of the beauty and the curiosity of
2: playing with this model. The the piece that Zach read about people choosing their own teams, choosing what they do. What would truly happen if that was true? My hypothesis would be that the teams who are fun to work with, who are productive, who get things done, you'd see people gravitating towards them. And then what happens to the teams that are um, full of politics or negative or the leader there is really difficult. You would see attrition. And so if you you did allow for some self-organization and you rewarded where the behavior was happening that allowed for work to be productive, would you naturally get more production and weed out the people that actually make organizations not so fun to work in?
0: Well, I mean, that goes with Steve Jobs's quote of A-teamers only want to work with A-teamers. And he yeah. always just said, those are the people that are productive, that have a same like mindset and stuff like that. I don't know. It just seems like also though organizations have culture and it seems like it's really hard to change lots of mindsets. Once you have sort of an established culture, are you finding that a lot of these places, as you were saying, like they kind of give the lip service. Oh yeah, we want to be this, but ultimately they just can't change, right? Normally that's why you see startups slowly eat up the old dinosaurs, right? Don's Mm -hmm. favorite example, of course, is Kodak, right? They couldn't see it about, hey, film's going away. We have to get, you know, we've got to make this pivot and they just can't change. It seems like this would be more of a market-based evolution as we just see new places just that have the employees that have the talent slowly just overtake older ones.
2: I think that's certainly a faster way to do it. I do think organizations that exist can get there. It's all about leadership and whoever is at the top sets that tone. And if they're saying they want something and then they're changing their own behaviors first, you would see that happen. I think what sometimes happens is leaders uh, at the top say that they want that, but they don't actually look at what it takes to change from their own management style, their own leadership. And so therefore, it's kind of like pointing out to the sea and saying, you all shall do this, and, and it falls flat. You get that lip service, you see variation, you see more rules around how we're going to do it then versus philosophy, and like it's lived and owned. So I, I do believe leadership starts at the top. However, I don't know how often senior leader executives are really willing to look at their own behavior and what needs to shift to empower that culture change.
0: Some of the ideas that were thrown out in the article... To maybe rethink work. Maybe we have a 36-hour work week, or maybe Mm -hmm. we end the work day by 3 p.m., or we have a four-day work week. Do you think those are more cosmetic changes than actual changes that people want?
2: I think it's an example of organizations yearning or or, um, striving to create, to find out how to create this. Like underneath, it's a desire, I think, to have that. And the approach is through prescribing, and so if I prescribe something to you, is that freedom? It, it doesn't feel like it to me. It feels like you're telling me how my freedom should look. <laughs> so I, I guess if, if I were to have a magic wand or be a CEO of the organization, and I really wanted some of these changes, I think I would put guidelines around it so that there were expectations. What I wouldn't want is just leave it to everyone to figure out, because then that's horrid, right? You have people who are coming into work eight days a week, maybe eight days a week, five days a week, and you have others who are working from home and you have this disparity and that's a mess. I I do think there needs to be a stated philosophy. Our organization empowers people to make the right decisions for their lifestyle and our managers and leaders equip them to be effective in their work in whatever way that needs to look. That outwardly tells employees what I believe. And then if I were to work with my team, what helps us get the most work done, the most effective? And how could we create that together? I think the downfall of everything I just said is it does rest often on the local leader to make that happen and bring it to life. And I do think there's a variation in, in leaders' abilities to do that or willingness to do that. If they have trust issues, there's no way they're going to Go to the extreme of of um, really co-creating that. If I had a magic wand, that's what I would do in an organization: put in expectations, create a philosophy, empower our leaders, and expect that every team has created what that freedom would look like for them, so they can be their best selves doing their best work.
1: I love this author. He has a good podcast, and I've read a couple of his books. I really like him a lot, and I. Part of the, read the article, as like a simple set of steps. Zach mentioned going to a four-day week because they tried that at Microsoft and people were actually more productive in the four days rather than a full five-day week. And there's other things listed in like having email doze time where there's no emails from like eight in the morning till noon. And therefore people really felt productive and had time. And I don't know if the article is a list of like steps you could take. Because I could see an executive reading the Wall Street Journal saying, okay, these are the five things we need to do to Mm -hmm. now be a free workplace. Or is the steps just representative of what you're saying is like a total rethink and a reawakening of how to reimagine this?
2: I think it's both, Don. I I feel like if I need a task list or steps, it means I don't have a mindset of what this could look like. So I need someone to tell me so I can do it. To me, that would represent that you're 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 still coming from a um, you're still learning in this space, and so maybe that's what's necessary. Maybe maybe that is what is what that organization and leadership team needs to bring about consistency and feel like they're taking steps forward. And maybe that's enough in their organization because it's bigger than what they have done before. I would say that that wouldn't be where I would see the most radical and creative thinkers being, you wouldn't need a list to figure out how to create freedom and empower people.
0: Shortening the work week or, or the work day, like those all just seem like cosmetic changes, though. It mm-hmm. seems like what workers really care about is autonomy and having, mm-hmm. again, the ability to choose how they're going about their jobs. And that's the part that I think must be really difficult to offer people. Are you finding that companies are coming to you from management or from the workers trying to communicate to you what it is they want and trying to chart a path, how to, how to get that. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what are the concerns being brought to you?
2: I do work with leadership teams and a lot of the times it's around helping them to be more effective and helping their leaders to be more effective. And It's working on growth so that leaders can create more space for people to do their best work and get out of the mindset of telling people what to do or I'm the expert and therefore you should listen to me. So a lot of the work I'm doing right now is in that space. The one thing I I would say that comes up, whether it's with senior leadership or coaching or teams that I often try to differentiate with folks is there's a difference between uh, leaders often want to talk about what we're doing and, and doing is exactly what Don described. What's the checklist? I'm giving them four days. They only have to write emails. Eight to five. <laughs> like to That's the doing or how I hold my meetings. There's a being of leadership. It's in the being is this mindset we're talking about. What is my philosophy, my values, what I bring to my leadership that creates the culture that we're working in. And, and so I think the being part is not seen, but it's what shapes all of these decisions and in many ways allows us to create this kind of culture or workforce or does not. Because we can meet as a leadership team and talk about how we want the organization to be in theory and then put out the edict that it's a four-day work week. But if we don't, if our being, if our, our mindsets, our belief, our values doesn't match that, nothing changes. So I think to answer your question, the work I do right now is look working with leaders to look in the mirror at their own behavior. And if they're leading out the way they're saying they want their organizations to run.
1: As we talk about this, and it's fascinating and the idea of how leaders work, and it seems like this is all in a upper management sort of philosophical work from home situation. But the reality is, our greatest loss, at least in my mind, because it irritates me, is the lack of frontline workers. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to go to Kroger. I went to Kroger the other day. The lines were like long as can be, waited forever to buy a Reganel, and <laughs> nobody wants to work at the checkouts, and that's the problem for airlines, that workers there, and that's the problem for all these frontline workers that just don't want to be at. How much of this could be applied to people that are just working day-to-day, checking out groceries, making sure that cars are clean, making sure, you know, the basic jobs that are on the front lines.
2: Well, you know, I don't specialize in that. However, people have ideas. People are creative, resourceful, and whole. And so I would be curious if you got together a group of people who did those jobs, what would they say would make them better? And have you done that? And have you listened it may not solve that you still need to check out worker at Kroger from some hours it may create a different way to get there or, or how people job share or when they do come in or or what benefits i provide them to help provide transportation that gets them there how am i looking at what my employees need to be effective and therefore I think when you have that reputation of you're listened to there's ideas that shape how the company works you attract people because they matter So how is that company and how is that um, team locally making sure people know they matter and and they're doing as much as they can to create the conditions for them to like what they're doing for the time that they're there?
0: No, I I think you're right. I think people want to be treated with dignity, honesty, and respect at Mm -hmm. any level, at any job. And it seems Mm -hmm. like you get down to the service worker job and a lot of people just say, this is how the job will be done. And as you're saying... Yeah, but have we ever asked the people that are actually doing the job if there's maybe a better way or is there a way they would like to go about having some autonomy and getting the job done? Mm -hmm. You know, Don and I work in education. So sort of wondering about the corporate offices, those are that's like a foreign world to us in many ways. And, you know, it's sort of interesting to kind of think about all of these demands. I think we're back at work now after the couple months and There just seems to be, I don't know, kind of a malaise uh, around some teachers that we know. And I'm not sure if that's just kind of the age and the number of years we've been there. I think there's an idea that we were off for kind of a year and a half in terms of not inside the physical classroom with students always around us. And I think it's been an adjustment for everybody. But it does make me wonder, all of these sorts of demands we're seeing at the corporate level, are they out there for everybody else in the workplace, no matter what level you're on?
2: Mm -hmm. So how would the two of you answer that looking at reimagining what's possible in the school system?
1: I would say that the, I would agree with Zach and we've, Zach just found data at Barron's yesterday that turnover in education sector is greater than pretty much any other sector Mm -hmm. and people are just leaving. And Mm -hmm. that in general, there's two factors at foot. So I feel like I have a tremendous amount of liberty in that I can do pretty much anything I want on any given day in my classroom, as long as it's going towards a longer goal of getting kids an understanding of economics or whatever. Now, my freedom is pretty much do whatever I want that's appropriate and educational, but that's a lot of freedom. That said, I can only do it for 79-minute chunks or (laughs) 82-minute chunks. like that, As long as I'm in class on this day, I'm doing this, doing something. And so it's a lot of freedom. And at the same time, a little bit less freedom and I'm okay with it. But to tell you the truth, I think it is the grind is real. And when people had a year and a half to imagine less of the grind or doing Mm -hmm. things in a different way or more at home, they came back and realized like I'm exhausted. And not only are we back to the norm, we're back to the norm a year and a half later and we're at a year and a half older, and it's a little bit harder, and people just are like, I, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. I, I just, it's harder than I remember.
0: The hard part with education too is, I mean, we are sort of quasi-childcare centers, mm-hmm. and therefore the expectation is that kids are going to be there all day long, and so to me, I do think schools could do better at rethinking what a school day actually is like I still think we have a horrific model of putting kids in a box for 45 minutes or an hour and then we ring a bell and they're allowed to go to another box and a lot of sitting Mm -hmm. a lot of taking it a lot of just getting and you know should we be thinking about the day differently you know should we be incorporating what is it that kids are doing at school and what is it that teachers are doing with kids at school but I do feel like we are just sort of back to the kind of just the traditional school mindset. And I think as Don was saying, I think it's just more exhausting than what people had to face last year when you just didn't have students always needing something from you all the time.
2: What do you think would bring more energy to it and energize the staff?
0: It's a great question. I don't know. I I think in some ways, maybe if teachers were given some more autonomy about how they maybe handled their day and, and maybe they had to work with other groups of teachers to just kind of decide like, you know, what do we want to do with our time or how do we want to accomplish these things? But some places, as Don was saying, like I think sometimes teachers do forget they do have some autonomy once the classroom, once everybody's in the in the room, right? And mm-hmm. maybe in some ways that gets forgotten a little bit along the way. I do think sometimes there isn't enough time given to teachers just to think and Mm -hmm. to prepare, like, what is it we want to do, how to be purposeful? Because a lot of the times we are needed to be in front of students monitoring, if that makes sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, I was reading the article and they talked about measuring productivity and how, based on these different work schedules and organizations, people are more or less productive. And I realized that we're not measuring productivity. The state says you have to have this many minutes in front of the kids in the room doing something. And that's how we're measured is, did we hit the minutes? So it would have to be at the state level saying, well, you have flexibility on your minutes, which they did during the pandemic for obvious reasons. But now it's back to minutes. We're measured by minutes and test scores. And it's always minutes and test scores, not minutes or test scores. And so it's that inhibits the ability to be really flexible because an organization as a school is actually really lean in terms of oversight. There's just, just enough administrators to keep chaos at bay and just enough counselors to get the kids in the right schedules and moving from hour to hour. And there's just enough upper admin to make sure the lights are on and the heat is running and It's just a pretty lean organization dedicated to getting kids through as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. And any bulk or saving, any savings at the upper admin level results in more revenue that gets to go to teachers, which we certainly want to soak up. So it's, it's just measured the wrong way, but Mm -hmm. it's measured the wrong way at a legislative state level, which is Mm -hmm. a beast to change.
2: And I think you're articulating the, the question you asked earlier, are people fleeing because they really want to create their own companies or, or, or what reasons are they fleeing for? You are articulating you're in a system that's a beast to change and you can do what's in your control and you could try to influence, but ultimately pivoting the entire system is out of your control. And I think that is exactly what hap- is happening in the workforce. Can, and then the question becomes, can you tolerate, do you love what you're doing enough to keep doing it? Can you tolerate the conditions in which you're doing it? And is there a different alternative that is more appealing in front of you that you might want to turn towards? And that's where the decision point comes. Do I stay? Is this enough for me? Um, And and can I survive in these conditions and tolerate them and influence where possible and own my agency, but also know there's limitations? Or is it time for me to pivot because this is too much? And that is the stats you were kind of sharing, people leaving um, in healthcare and in been teaching in yeah. these critical fields.
0: Right. I mean, in, you know, the the baron's thing said it was about 160,000 people have left local and, and government schools in September and October. I mean, that's the beginning of the school year. And this is against a, a 500,000 worker increase generally in the economy. So you have people leaving. And so I guess, Beth, as our organizational strategist and coach, imagine you're going to a local school that's like, okay, we have to retain our employees here. We've got to attract new talent here to the educational field. These are the constraints. And Don and I tried to at least list out a few. Any chance you could give maybe three bullet points that you would recommend a school board consider in terms of its labor force?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that those are such great questions off the top of my head. Where I want to go is the system level, because I I do know that there's those constraints of what you can do as an individual school lies within what, what you're governed by, right? So I think number one is what's happening in the largest element of the system and who's working with that group because that's where the biggest change would be effect. But if that is out of the scope, then from the teacher's perspective, from the student's perspective, what are the top three things you all would want and what would make that possible? I don't know the answers because I'm I'm not a teacher and I'm not there, but I just comes to mind what if there's a job share and there's a teacher who only wants to work part-time and comes and relieves Don on Thursdays and he can do thinking what what would it look like to do some creative things to get to the outcomes that you would want that would make you more satisfied more effective and have your your kids having a better outcome it feels really complicated in that I would think part of the discussion would be not only would it it what is better for the the working environment, but like what, what does education exist for is ultimately a really big philosophical question. And the system that needs to also evolve to provide the workforce with a pipeline of people who are great leaders and um, great employees and great team members. So it is so multi-layered. I have such empathy and compassion for being in it. Um, But if it was just a working with a school, it would be what are the top three things that our, our microcosm of the environment really want that would up their effectiveness and satisfaction and how could we give it to them within the, the constraints that we have? I don't know what they would be, but I would be curious to, to find out what modifications could be made in our control.
0: Do you ever find when you're brought in to advise that people are, or organizations are interested in having you come to advise just to say, that they had you come to advise, but they actually don't really want your advice. Don and I have sat through some PDs and uh, just, we've seen things where we, we you know kind of almost want to check a box. Like, oh yeah, we're, we're working towards trying to make some changes here. But really ultimately, like once the, the expert that came in to talk leaves, nothing really gets shifted. Do you see mm-hmm. that a lot?
2: You know, I, I wonder sometimes um, when that happens or how that's perceived. My experience has been, I do think the executives at the table don't see it as lip service, but actually think they're doing the right things. They're they're not able to see the bias they hold or the perspective they hold. Um, I, I think with the rise of lots of efforts in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, this is where this example you're giving is more into focus, right? Everyone, it feels like has rallied around making sure they have staff or a team focused on this, making sure they have a strategy. However, the degree of which they're willing to implement changes varies in terms of how progressive they are. And when you look at some of the organizations that it, where it may feel like they're, they're doing lip service or they're just, it goes back to that checking a box example that Don gave, that. I think I'm doing it because I'm checking this box. I have a diversity officer. We're reporting these things to the board. Check, check, check. But actually what hasn't changed is my mindset. Oh, I'm a white male. I've grown up in privilege. I need to be aware of how policies and things we have affect people of color, women from getting promotions. I need to be invested in looking at my compensation strategy and how we're paying people. I feel like if you don't have curiosity and the desire to be self-aware, you likely are going to make decisions that look like you're just checking a box and not really interested. But that agency and ownership lies with the person, and I don't know if they're always conscious of that.
0: Well, and also just seems like it's a you know making changes like this are really hard, but also yeah. time consuming, and it it's not just a motivational video or an article that everybody reads and then everybody kind of nods their head and says, okay, we we did it, right? Like yeah. it. it, it <laughs> It's a habit, and it just seems like that's something that I think a lot of people forget. Probably at any level, is well, didn't we do this last week? Aren't we done with it now? And it's like, well, no. Like <laughs> this is a major deal.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think there's a there's a change model, a communication model I love, and I can't cite who created it, but um, it's it's uh, levels of creating change in organizations, and the top level. Let's just jump there, and then I'll juxtapose that with the bottom level. The top level is. To really get to behavioral change where people are doing things differently, it takes two-way dialogue. It takes experience. It takes lots of conversation. And I think what often happens with change is the example you gave is what's called level one, which is I send out an article, I send out a uh, newsletter, and then I check it off. Anytime I'm communicating one way, I'm never going to get behavioral change. All I've done is inform people, which means they can say, thanks for sending me the article, Don. (laughs) Got it but there's no change that comes from it. It takes time investment. It takes conversation. It takes openness and so many other variables to be able to truly impact a full behavior change in an organization. I think that's overlooked is the amount of time and dialogue it takes because oftentimes we don't want to hear what's on the other end of the conversation. So it's easier to cut that off and do the one-way thing
1: bet time is more scarce than ever before, as people have not enough employees to cover the work that needs to be done. They probably are more reticent to actually commit that time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. However, that's the ironic part, I think, about some of this article about freedom, is they talk about the negative liberty, which is freedom from obstacles and interference by others. I think that is so inherent in being part of an organization. The and some of it's so good. I mean, I was internal for seventeen years. I was part of making organizational meetings happen. Um, so I know that the there's connectedness and communication that comes from them. However, I do think that attractiveness of being self-employed or doing your own thing, you eliminate all of those requirements of that you have when you're internal. The emails about the potluck next week, the town hall you have to go to to listen to the strategy. Those all take time. To your point, and when you can make them value added, they have value. However, if there's too much of them, just think about how, I mean, there's a lot of employees that spend all day in meetings and how many of them are value added and how many are required by the company. Where could we get freedom back by minimizing those negative inhibitors?
0: this idea of all of these freedoms, again, the freedom to choose how how much you're going to work or who you're working with or what you're working on, all of those things. I almost just kind of thought about it as like, this seems like a revolutionary sort of movement among workers and what their demands are to kind of, you know, take the shackles from management and throw them in their face. But it also just sort of, the first thing I was kind of thinking of was like, most revolutions sort of fail. And in the end, the big entity kind of wins. And everything just kind of goes back to normal or people get beaten down. And so one thought I had, though, is aren't we just sort of like one recession away from people just to be happy that they have a job again and can Mm. support their families and all of these desires that they are asking for now, fresh off of COVID, maybe just kind of go away. And therefore, do you (laughs) think management is just like, we just got to wait them out a little bit and then they'll be desperate again for a job?
2: you know it is maslow's hierarchy right we have safety and we have those needs however we're human beings so i think that's a short term view of things and for sure you need to be able to take care of your family and have a roof under your head over your head and make sure your family's fed however i think humans are wired to want more that's how the whole maslow's hierarchy triangle got shaped right like you keep going up it and and wanting connection and belonging and wanting maybe self-actualization or the ability to know who you are in this world, what your potential is and how you contribute. I don't think we can strip that from humanity. Uh, I think that's what makes us amazing um, as a species. So I think the short term, yeah, that could happen. There, I mean it happened to me, I know, and the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, I, I honestly had a vision of me living in my mom's backyard in a tent. <laughs> like, like, what if that happens? Like, who, who has property? We were renting a house. Who has property I could live on? Went to like the lowest common denominator, right? Like, that's what mattered. However, when that need becomes met, or I feel secure enough in it, I'm going to go back up and um, continue to look for it. So, I think the longer term game, to your point, revolutions, I mean, I was reading a book last night in Feminist Revolution. We're not. We're not done with trying to change the role females play in our society When in terms of political economic power and uh, seats at the board and all of those things. We're nowhere near done. And this has been going on for, I don't know, 60, 80 years in 100 years since the, even getting the vote. That's a 100-year game and longer because, of course, we build on the forefathers and mothers that came before us. This isn't going to be a short game either. And so it can be disappointing, but I think um, when people have the power to walk with their feet, then employers need to respond. And the employer's choices: is, am I playing for the short game, which is win them back with some money, throw some cash at them, and then give them a crappy manager and hope that they make it two years? Or am I playing for the long game? What What am I really evolving to? And that's a um, that takes time and strategy and intent and desire, and it's hard work, right? But I think with the new generation growing in, in their roles, uh, with people in our generation who want more of that balance, the tides are going to turn. It's a matter of time.
1: Beth, you are my hero in many ways, but <laughs> I we've, there's so many thoughts I have, but first one is you know you mentioned like you have to imagine your alternatives. Do you still want to stay with the job and what are and I'm two and a half years from retirement. I could walk away with a pension and health care for life for my family and I just can't imagine the alternatives. Maybe I'm uncreative or unimaginative, mm-hmm. but you've done this. People wanna be entrepreneurs. You worked at a big corporation. You left and traveled the world for a year with your family. You've come back to become an entrepreneur and courage is mentioned in the article. You have a lot of courage, but also you just mentioned fears. Mm-hmm. How can we think about this in terms of what is the individual person's contemplation as they look at all these alternatives?
2: Well, I, I'd like to start with a simple um, formula I could offer people. It's not mine at all. And I prob- I'm really bad at citing sources. So if we need to provide any follow-up, I can do that. But there's a, there's a great little model for change when it comes to personal decision-making. And the formula is D, which stands for dissatisfaction, times V, which stands for vision, times F, which stands for first steps. And then those multi- when you multiply your dissatisfaction, with what you have, your vision, how high your vision is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being super clear with first steps on how to get there on that same scale of one to 10, that multiplier has to be bigger than the R which is for resistance. So in other words, there's three ingredients for stepping forward and doing something different in your career or your life. And that is you have to be dissatisfied enough with the current conditions and situation. You have to have enough compelling vision. Maybe it's not completely thought out, but something that is moving you forward. And you have to have some first steps of how you're going to get there. Those three things have to be in place and then you overcome resistance. So I think that's something we, we all can look at when we're making changes And I use it to identify what might be the lower piece, because it could be vision. I don't know what I would do, but I'm highly dissatisfied here. (laughs) But it could also be like, I don't know if I, maybe I'm not dissatisfied enough to enact my vision of creating my own business or going into partnership with someone, or maybe I have a great vision and I'm highly dissatisfied, but I don't actually have first steps of how to make that happen. So um, I would offer that as a diagnostic to look at when thinking about your own life. And then when it comes to you know what is my vision, and that was maybe more of the specific piece you were looking at, I think that's where coaching comes into play. I think that's where friends who ask great questions and can listen to you come into play. I think that's where journaling and listening to yourself comes into play. But what, are you, what, is it, um, what is it you want? And, and again, this isn't because I'm escaping Microsoft or whatever company it is. This is what's in my heart and what feeds my soul and what am I really wanting to give to the world and do every day? Um, that's a lot of in, introspection, reflection. Maybe it's not as big as I'm making it out to be, but I think it's where your support network can come into and help you create whether you want to leave teaching to do something else. And if so, what that something else is in a few years.
0: Your equation is is amazing. I really enjoyed kind of it's visualizing not mine, for the that. record.
2: <laughs> well, the, the equation
0: that you're citing. Yes. So then my my I wrote this down as you were writing is in America, most people just say follow your dreams. Mm-hmm. When you hear that, what do you think?
2: Oh man, yeah, I I you know, so I'm gonna speak from lived experience. I I went to a coaching weekend workshop in Tucson working with horses, which is incredible. And went into the workshop thinking I need to figure out what's next for me in my career. And I came out realizing what I really wanted was to do something I thought I couldn't do until I retired, and that was to travel. And I wanted to do it with my family and I wanted to do it while um, my kids were young and I I had this vision of like not having a replacement knee. (laughs) But like, I don't have bad knees, but like, you know, you wait till you're 70, you got a fake knee and things change. So I wanted to do it now. And, And from that lived experience, I do often say to people, live the life you imagine. And I don't mean it like foo-foo, but like if there's something you really want, there is a way to make it happen. And and you can figure out, we can figure out collectively how to make it happen. So I do believe in live the life you you have imagined. I do think there's something to imagining that and being purposeful and creating that. It feels a little less trite when I think about it for myself than follow your dreams. Um, however, I think that in essence, the sentiment's the same, like what, what is it you want to do and what's going to take to make that possible.
0: You sound so optimistic and positive and yeah, I am. as some, <laughs> no, no. And I, and as somebody who's maybe slights more on the the pessimistic side of life and and everything like that, do you ever allow yourself to get pessimistic about anything? Or, or have you somehow cracked the mindset that just doesn't allow you to go to dark places?
2: <sighs> uh, no, I do. I do. I might, we were just talking about this last night. I tend to read, I tend to gravitate to books that are, um, I just read one about, um, a girl in New York city that came out and it's called a P- poverty in America. And it follows a family for eight years of this young girl named this Dasani and, um, coming in and out of the foster care system and parents who have worked so hard to keep the family together and haven't been able to make ends meet. I read those things because I find them both empowering. I find them educational; they inform me, and they absolutely depress me because I'm like, "What the heck do we do to change the system?" Um, So when I think about the totality of the collective systems, whether it's education, as we talked about earlier, or justice on a global level, it does take me down. It can be an anchor, and I find that I, I I still find there's a grain of like, "But what can I do?" There's got to be something I could do, and. Going back to what's in my control, what gives me agency is empowering to me. So for sure dips, but I don't think I stay there forever.
0: (laughs) The American media, you, you get on social media and it, you know, you just feel like our nation with political divides, COVID, social movements, anxiety about the environment. I feel like Americans have just sort of lost the ability to even communicate with one another that just think a little bit differently than each other. Are you finding those sorts of division and angst coming into workplaces now and it's actually hurting corporate environments or are people checking all that at the door?
2: You know, I think the vaccine has made it impossible (laughs) to, to check that at the door because it has been, it comes with politics even though it seems so weird to say, but because organizations are faced with what is our policy around vaccines and vaccinated people. I mean, I think we're seeing the numbers continue to come out in articles about the number of stewardesses and stewards that have left the flight agency or nurses. Uh, The hospital just let go by us 170 nurses because they didn't get vaccinated. I I do think that comes with this territory and and in other ways um, continues to keep that burning platform a bit hot to look at all of these things. Same with the diversity and equity space. Those are difficult conversations. And so what is an organization's role in facilitating those kinds of conversations and how have they equipped their leaders and their organization to handle the diversity of perspectives that come with it in a safe and healthy way? So I I don't, I think maybe even more than ever, um, now I've only been in the workforce 25 years, but it feels like those things are uh, right under the surface, if not on the surface in our conversations.
0: That seems like the ultimate challenge to now be a leader and to have to try to facilitate discussions, facilitate a workplace that is incorporating all of those ideas. And at the same time, a lot of these people are probably thinking about the bottom line, I would assume, right? Are we more efficient than we were last year? Have we increased revenue? And how does all of that fit? are you finding a lot of managers want out of working at this Mm -hmm. point? I mean, we talk about the labor shortage and a lot of it is of course frontline workers, but are you finding that a lot of managers are like, I don't want to deal with this anymore.
2: You know, I have not run into that. It's a really interesting question. Now I want to preface, I'm not an internal person at this point in time. I am an external coach and consultant. So I don't see the masses. I see you know, segments of the organization, like senior leadership teams, individual leaders, the leaders I'm coaching clearly are there because they want to thrive and grow. So I probably have a skewed lens of the average um, leader in an organization, but it, it's really curious to find that out, it, how it's playing out at that, that regard in the, in the masses for leadership. What do you think?
0: I don't know. I I mean, I, I my only perspective, I guess, would be the education perspective. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seems like it would be, harder than ever to be an administrator in a building Mm -hmm. because you're now trying to obviously manage staff, manage students, but schools seem like they're under a microscope more than ever. And the public seems to have its opinions about how they want schools to run or what they want schools to be talking about inside of schools. And it just seems like the PR job for an administrator seems larger than ever. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, I, and you could say, well, the workload's always been hard for leaders and administrators in any job, but It just seems hard because it just seems more magnified. And I'm just not sure if that's also just because of the way we communicate now, where we Mm -hmm. just communicate in forums and we leave up things that maybe are true or are not true. And we write in caps and we write with emojis. And it just seems like there's a huge swirl that just kind of surrounds everything. And it would just Mm -hmm. be really difficult.
1: Mm -hmm. I think leaders at a higher level and higher income level are more firmly based in the status quo or in the establishment that is, and they have their own mortgages or second homes to pay for, and they're invested and they can't walk away as easily or don't want to walk away as easily. Or you could come back and think about the vision aspect that Beth spoke about earlier. Zach and I know an administrator that had a vision of walking away as soon as she could. And despite the fact she was great at what she did, she walked away because that was her vision. And I think a lot of them, their vision is continuing on, fulfill this role, and can't just abandon immediately.
0: But again, I, you know, as we're seeing with education jobs and people leaving give them another year or two. And I'll be curious if we start to see administrators leaving in droves just because of how they feel like they've been treated and stuff like that. I mean, we mm-hmm. we talk about the, you know, from the teacher perspective, but again, I just always go with, I'm always amazed at how we as a nation now communicate with one another. And I, I just always feel like it's not very productive. And it takes, I, I feel like we almost strip away people's humanity when we just want to speak to them as another person. I guess I'll just wonder if we start to see leaders just saying, I'm done. I'm out, or or you know what? Maybe they de-promote themselves, I guess, and they're like, I just want to go back into the to the workforce. I don't want to be in charge anymore.
2: Well, and I think that I, I have heard that, and I will, um, I have heard that as recently this week that someone was offered a promotion to take on direct reports, and they said, you know what? I'm super good. Like <laughs> I like being responsible for myself and getting my work done. But I think that's a common. I don't know if that's changed because of the pandemic. I think people have asked themselves that question, um, especially as you get further along in your career and you know, what's really important to you. So I, I think that might be part for the course, but I do think it asks the question of like, what does leadership look like in America? I, I know I certainly have a view and I've articulated on this part podcast, some of my beliefs and my values. However, we elected a president prior to our current one that had a very different style of leadership um, than I would have ever subscribed to. And clearly lots of people in america think that's leadership so if half of us do how much can things really evolve into this freedom aspect that we're talking about what is leadership what does good leadership look like Uh, and how do we all evolve to be there it probably looks really different for lots of people
1: well zach let's put the question to you you're a teacher of the year you've been coaching sports for many many years you have an administrative credential there is a need for administrators. Certainly you would be great at it. Why don't you take that spot?
0: One, I don't think I would be great at it. I have, I feel like I kind of know who I am. And I think I would just get stressed out over every hard gray decision that every administrator has to make. And that's why I have a lot of respect for kind of the job they have to do. And I've kind of reached a point about like, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty happy in my current role and I think I can be effective at it. And I'm always intrigued by what administrators do, but I just don't think I could step up to the plate and effectively do the job knowing just sort of kind of, or at least not knowing, but at least having a sense of what it is they have to do all day. It just seems really hard. I would agree. (laughs) Well, flipping it from administrators, then I was curious, Beth, because Don and I are just now old, we're, we're getting close to being called a boomer, or maybe some kids do call us that. And yet I want to talk about the kids. We got a new generation of workers coming up the millennials and, you know, in the media that we read, nobody seems to like the millennials, right? They're always on their phones. They don't want to work. They don't like conflict. They need to have a hug every three minutes. What are you seeing with the new generation of workers? Are they, are they more productive than ever? Are they hard to motivate?
2: I mean, I think that is, again, looking at it from a perspective of our view of work, right? And I think what's beautiful about the younger generations is they're they're defining what their view of work is. And I think to many of us that have grown up uh, in the most recent times, it seems radical. It seems different. It seems risky. It seems not the path that we may have been told that we need to take. So I, I I do wonder if we will continue to see this great migration in that the next generation will have more people than not that don't sign up for these traditional jobs. And I don't mean teaching nursing, things like that. I mean, like in a workplace, the the formality of working for an employer versus being self-employed. Because even in the article, it talks about, you know, millennials wanted more vacation. Do they want more vacation? Or is it really like, I don't wanna be at work. (laughs) Those are two different things. (laughs) And, and, And so I think what I love is the invention, the ingenuity, the seeing of possibilities that were never clear to me. Like I never would have gotten out of college and been like, I'm going to be a gig worker and I'm going to do these four jobs and then have my Etsy store and have this income. Like That's all new. So I think employers are going to have to, I think they're going to need to be creative to accommodate that. Like, what if I could get a millennial who's willing to work with me on contract 10 to 15 hours a week and they have their own business on the side and doing these other things? Can I do that? Can I accommodate that? Because I think that's what's going to start happening, that, that I have multiple gigs and I'm happy to support you on X project, but I'm not, I'm not here 40 hours a week. That's, whoa, that's like marriage, not interested. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what I'm hearing you say though is, because the knock against, of course, the, the upcoming generation is that their parents and society have just enabled them to kind of not have a lot of grit, not have a lot of focus. And what you're saying is the work world is just going to enable them and how they work in the future?
2: I think so. I mean, I had a conversation with a friend of mine whose son opened 15 years old, 16 years old, opened his own store online and some gaming thing. He's making $800 a month in people buying these products. And do you know where it's going? Into cryptocurrency. Oh. So what's he gonna? I mean, now he could lose it all. But if he puts eight hundred dollars in cryptocurrency every month in five years, what's he gonna have that I don't have? <laughs> like, is he gonna need the job at, at Raytheon? Like, maybe not. So again, that is a you know a lottery question, and I know there's a lot of volatility there. But that's something you and I never had growing up. So what is what's possible for there? So I, I don't know. I, I think it's a great unknown, but I would be prepared for all of these things to play out in a way different way than the traditional go to college, come out of college, get a job, work your way through the ranks, retire with two houses. That maybe was a goal for someone. I think um, the young people are going to figure out how to make what they have happen now.
0: Well, you mentioned crypto and Mm -hmm. last week here, Don's favorite billionaire, Mark Zuckerberg came out and decided to change Facebook to Meta And apparently now we're going to live in this metaverse online and we're going to work there. And there's been a lot of discussions about the idea of meeting people's demands of when they want to work, where they want to work. And therefore, the idea is maybe we're putting on VR goggles and then hanging out in a virtual room while I guess we're working all day. Has anybody started approaching you to talk about, we got to start organizing for the metaverse. We need your advice. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> no I have not had that I, I guess in, in fact the most recent conversations I've had have in, in a way been maybe the opposite or telling I, I've had a few executives say so what's it like to be external and not in an organization and they've asked it in a way like I'm asking for a friend <laughs> but not so um, I, I have not faced that question at all and no um, but maybe I'm not working with companies that are thinking that far ahead
0: yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's it's a weird thing, but I'm amazed at how much, how many think pieces I've read this week about mm-hmm. the future of the meadow world. And it seems like it's kind of coming. I mean, I don't think it's coming right tomorrow, but slow and steady, as we've seen technical adoption, and maybe it's there. And I guess I'll just be curious how that possibly impacts workers and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I love the pioneers and the innovators. If, if they, if if we don't have folks who are stretching us to think different, then we don't have something to expand into. So um, follow that. And I think there's something to watch for that. What are we creating? Is it, and is it good for all of us? I think a few years ago uh, people thought about culture and they thought about organizations that had foosball tables and, and, and that seemed like the way to have culture, like, wow, that's really radical. And, you know, more recent thinking on that is actually that's, that's a bit gendered stereotype of what people want and need in the workplace. It actually resembles a bit more of a frat house than it does the workplace. Most people want. And I think, I think we have to c- continue to be aware of how the choices we're making to shape our organizations play for all of us, not just some of us.
0: Well, I've got a final question then. I'm going to put you on the spot here, thinking about what you know about workplaces and, and how they work and the, the real obstacles they have in sort of making these cultural changes. Are you long or are you short the American workers experience at work?
2: Like am I hopeful or am I not? Is that the kind of yeah of yeah?
0: Would you would you buy in that oh, the gosh. experience gets better that we meet these demands or again I'm sort of a pessimistic believer that most revolutions die with uh, the greater entity just kind of slapping everybody down or you know in the Simpsons there was that great episode where Mr Burns was trying to listen to all the plant uh, you know the workers demands at the plant and then he yeah. ends up giving them tartar sauce and that's uh, <laughs> that was the that was the big thing they got.
2: I uh, I'm I think revolution ends up, revolution, what is it, right? It changes the essence of how things are done and you end up with a different variable. I think if we're looking at it that way, I'm hopeful that whether it's new generations who are coming forward or things like a pandemic disrupt us enough or have disrupted us enough or, or will continue to, that we are forced to think of doing it a different way. But if we continue to think of it from the paradigm of, kind of like you you said, we had a pandemic for as teachers, we went home, then we came back to work and now we're kind of doing it again. I hope that those experiences are more in the minority and um, there's more gains made in thinking about how to work differently overall and out taking the blinders and the constraints of the traditional workplace off and looking at it for w- what would be possible and um, generate to meet for everyone's needs. So I'm hopeful for revolution, but I also realistic that that's might not happen in my lifetime.
0: Or maybe it'll happen in the metaverse.
2: <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> I will go there and create the utopia of the workforce. I don't know. I'll have to learn more about that.
0: There you go. Well, Beth, I, some of your ideas today have been just really fascinating to listen to. And I was just curious if anybody is listening, is there a way they could contact you just to, to pick your brain or to, to obviously network with you or anything like that?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think the easiest way uh, is LinkedIn. And uh, my profile is Beth Steiner. The last name is S-T-I-N-E-R. And would love to connect with anyone doing this work, interested in this work, uh, changing organizations from the inside out. That would love to connect.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Beth and Don. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I look forward to talking with you next week.
1: Thank you, Beth. You are my favorite Spartan by far.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.